18 to 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Today we continue our study of Colossians. <clears throat> Paul has been uh, giving instructions right above our text of how the body of Christ is to live life with one another. And that's kind of what we covered last week. Today he gives instructions for the Christian households. So this is relating to Christian homes and how they are to live. As I was getting to this text, I reviewed uh, Colossians and read over the book, and I was going to give a short, brief review, and that review entailed two pages. So, um, Dee's scripture that she read was very powerful in the middle of Colossians 2 about how powerful the cross is. And I wonder if we understood that better would we be more prepared to hear this text today I shortened my two pages of review and <clears throat> said this what if we like the Colossians had received this letter from the Apostle Paul and received it as the Word of God if we understood as Christians the greatness and the glory of who Jesus was and is and is to come. What if we constantly grew in the depth and knowledge of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? What if we loved Jesus and submitted wholeheartedly to his lordship yeah and, and the lights on green so what if we grew I'm sorry if you can't hear me real well but the mic problems but what if we grew in the depths of the knowledge in the depths of the gospel and what Jesus accomplished in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead what if we submitted to him as Lord 
and obeyed his voice? And what if we submitted to Christ and submitted to one another in the fear and reverence of Christ? Then do you think we would be ready to hear these admonitions concerning the Christian family household? Maybe a little bit better if we understood all the letter. You know, the letter was read as a whole. So they were grasping all this before they got to this point late in the letter. So if we understood all those things, all those I took from the scriptures of those two pages and wrote out basically like that and said, I, I, I wish we could really grasp those things deeply when we get into this text of today. One of the things by um, way of preface is that in one of the commentaries I'm reading from O'Brien, that, that's a really in-depth commentary on Colossians, he said this about, these, uh, about this text. The husband-wife, father-children, master-servant relationships are twin admonitions that stand together and are to be interpreted together. The first should not be interpreted apart from the second. So we're going to begin with the admonition to wives, for wives to submit to their husbands. And what he's saying is it should not be interpreted without the second admonition. These are twin admonitions, husband and wife, that's one. Children to their fathers and bond servants to their masters. Those are the three twin admonitions that go together. And they shouldn't be interpreted each one individually, but they should be interpreted together. Following me? Okay. That was important to me and important how you read the paragraph about Christian households. So we begin with the admonition for the wives to submit to their husbands, which should not be interpreted apart from the admonition to the husbands to love their wives. They go together and they only make sense when they're interpreted together or you bring out the full sense of the meaning. So, wives, submit to your husbands uh, goes with husbands loving their wives. So submit here isn't a bad word. Uh, it's uh, been marred in a sense because of sin. So submission in the human Form is never complete, it's messed up, it's used wrongly, and in bad ways. So one of the things that submit does not mean is to mean that you are less than or inferior to. So in all of these areas that the Bible has talked about submission, um, it's, it's saying uh, even in the uh, church, where we read in our liturgy today at the end of Ephesians, before it enters into the similar text as this one today, it says, submit to one another in fear and reverence of Christ. That word isn't bad. It means we recognize each other's gifts and we submit to one another. Submit is not a word meaning, oh, well, you're better than me and I'm less than you because you're this or fulfill this role. And so it does not mean 
I think that's important to realize not, does not mean inferior. So the wife isn't inferior to her husband in this uh, respect of this word submit to her husband. So um, one of the examples, which is really good, is that Jesus himself submitted to the Father. And, and, and it speaks of that, his submission to the Father. He submitted to the Father in many ways. Uh, in the garden, he submitted to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. The Father says, yes, we're going to do this. Obey me about the tree. Jesus says, that's going to be really hard. Can this cup pass for me? No, drink from that cup. Drink my full wrath to take it out upon sin. Obey me about that tree. Adam didn't obey me about the tree in the garden. You obey me about this tree in this garden. And Jesus submitted to the Father. Didn't mean he was less than the Father. He was glorious in his submission to the Father's will. And uh, there was purpose and, and meaning in his submission to the Father. And it didn't mean, didn't mean that he was not equal to the Father. In some of these texts, um, at, at the Gospel Coalition, uh, Tim and Kathy Keller spoke together. And uh, Tim got up and talked about husbands loving your wives. And uh, then he spoke for about 20 minutes, and then he got down, and his wife Kathy Keller got up and spoke about another 20 minutes on wives submitting to their husbands. And so I thought that was really great, hearing wives submit to your husbands from uh, a wife. And uh, so I asked Teresa if she wanted to do this part, uh, but she didn't. She's not up here. Where is she? <laughs> Teresa didn't. She didn't go for that. I said, look at this. Man, this is a great exposition of the word. Um, but Kathy Keller did say some real important things uh, in that, and she did look at Philippians 2, uh, this great hymn of the church about Christ's submission uh, to the Father and being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and this humbling part. And she said this, All of God's designs are beautiful. They're sometimes intricate. They're difficult to master and they're affected by sin, but glorious nonetheless. In marriages that embrace God's design, you both get to play the Jesus role. Husbands are told to imitate Jesus as the servant leader who will go to any length, even death, to serve and purify his bride. Wives can look to Jesus as he was in Philippians 2, submissive to the role of Ezer in full knowledge of her equality. And she goes into Ezer and from the creation in Genesis and the woman being taken out of the side of man and what that word means. And then she shows how even God, uh, throughout the Psalms and the Old Testament, that word is used for God to be the Ezer, to be our help to be our helper. Uh, even God is our helper. So she says that uh, both get to play the Jesus role, and she uses those scriptures backing it up. In the book, The Meaning of Marriage, she helped write that. She helped write uh, books with Tim Keller, a lot of the books, but in this one, The Meaning of Marriage, which we've taught on here before in the church and, and gone through series of its excellent book on the meaning of marriage, uh, she writes one whole chapter in that book. A, a lot of that uh, is very good. It's called Embracing the Other, the name of that chapter in the book, The Meaning of, of Marriage. And in 
a quote from that chapter is, traditionally Christians understand the husband gets to play the Jesus role in marriage as being the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church from Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. But Kathy explains both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus, in his sacrificial authority, it's the husband who gets to sacrifice, lay down his authority and serve and give his life. The husband plays that role. And then Jesus, in his sacrificial submission, that the wife is called to serve that Jesus role. Jesus was in humble, talking about that role, humble submission to the will of the Father during his time on earth as the incarnate God-man. And he was exalted because of it. And Philippians goes on to say he was given the name that was above every other name. And so Jesus in his humility was exalted to that place. We wives, Kathy Keller goes on to explain, get to take this as our example. We get to play the Jesus role. So, you know, she explained that real well. Together they said, any exercise of power can only be done in service to the other, not to please oneself. Jesus is the one who did not come to be served as the world's authority figures expected him to be, but he came to serve to the point of giving his life. Following the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' words seem to have finally sunk in. Uh, By the time Paul writes uh, Ephesians 5, where it has these same commands of wives to submit to their husbands and husbands love your wives, the relationship of Jesus to the church had been made the model for that of a husband and a wife. We, the church, submit to Christ in everything. And the parallel of a wife submitting everything to her husband is no longer daunting since we know what kind of behavior the husband has been called to imitate. To what role must the husband submit? To that of servant leader who uses his authority and power to express a love that doesn't even stop at dying for his beloved. So we see these together, these twin admonitions. She goes on to say, Tim and Kathy together, if a wife's role in relation to her husband is analogous to the church's submission to Christ, then we have nothing to fear. Both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority and Jesus in his sacrificial submission. By accepting our gender roles and operating within them, which is what the Apostle Paul is trying to get them to do, we are able to demonstrate to the world through our marriages, believe it or not, this is what it's supposed to be, through our marriage, and through our marriages to demonstrate to the world concepts that are so counterintuitive as to be completely unintelligible unless they are lived out by men and women in Christian marriages. That's, That's a lot to take in. So when we read, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, and husbands love your wives 
and do not be harsh with them. We understand that yes, the Christian wife submits as is fitting unto the Lord. It's not being inferior and it's obviously not submitting to anything that would be disobedient to the word. You know, you would never do that. Jesus is never asking us to do anything disobedient to instructions in the word. And so it's as is fitting in the Lord. That is, there's this attitude and behavior that a Christian wife has with Jesus, and that attitude and behavior that she has with Jesus, she also gives as a gift to her husband. The Christian's husband is to love his wife and not simply just with affectionate feelings, not with just sexual attraction, uh, but it involves what love means in the Bible. When it says, uh, just here in this text, without jumping into Ephesians, just saying, husbands, love your wives, what that meant was unceasing care, a loving service for the entire well-being of his wife. That's literally parts of the definition of what it means to love uh, in the Bible. So it's a lot. It is a huge command uh, towards the husband. It is a love that is sacrificial. There's no way of getting around that. The a sacrifice that the husband does that disregards itself, does not demand its own way, which is defined by Christ and his actions. The husband is following Christ and his actions of how he led as a servant leader. So a lot of this is, doesn't make any sense outside of Christianity. Uh, it only makes sense within Christian marriages, and this is what Paul is addressing here, the Christian household. So husbands are to submit to this command, to love, to specifically what he says, to not treat your wife harshly. That would be yelling. That would be coming angry. There's also a scripture that says not become embittered against them. Uh, so the husbands are not to become embittered against their wives in thought, in word, or in deed. They are not to vent their bitterness. They are not to uh, be harsh with their wives. Anyway, this is the scripture and command to the husbands. And these go together. And when Kathy Keller got up, she said, yeah, Tim, if you live like that, I can submit to you. <laughs> and then she started her teaching. So it's a lot on the husband as well as for uh, the wife. Now, it, it makes sense in biblical marriage. In the meaning of, of marriage, they define marriage, what the Bible teaches as the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. I know you didn't get this maybe in your premarital uh, counseling if you had any, uh, but that's what the Bible teaches. It's a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other when you enter into marriage. We enter into marriage mostly uh, with the idea of self-fulfillment for ourselves. What am I going to get out of this marriage that's going to help me uh, benefit? Um, but that's not biblical marriage. There's marriage ideas in traditional societies that make uh, family the ultimate value in life. So you marriage to kind of increase your family's interest, both financially and in all kinds of ways. Sometimes marriage is that. Uh, in our more Western society, uh, marriage is a lot, like I said, about the individual's happiness. Am I happy? Am I getting fulfilled? Are you helping me, uh, you know, 
with my own happiness. And so marriage becomes more, uh, more primarily an experience of romantic fulfillment. And marriage in the Bible uh, sees God as the supreme good, not the individual or the family. And that is because at the heart of biblical marriage is the idea of covenant. And most of us don't understand that promise that God made to us to save us and the promises that we make in marriage. We've lost that value of what our vows and that covenant relationship means. The covenant love of God is for us, and our love in marriage and family involves a love that is sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. God sacrificed in his love for us for our good, and he did it through his son, and he displayed it as we've read today in our liturgy. And we, in our marriages, do the same thing. Christian marriages are about how can we benefit the other. So in most of cultures where they enter into marriage for self-fulfillment rather than for self-sacrifice, there is uh, a lot of problems that go wrong. And they can in Christian marriages, but we are to live that way. We are to enter that. We are to understand that about Christian marriage. So, according to the Bible, God devised marriage to reflect his saving love for us in Christ. Marriages reflect that. It's what all of Ephesians 5 is about in that instructions, that when Paul's giving all those instructions to husbands and wives, he's saying, I tell you a mystery. I'm not talking about wives and husbands. I'm talking about Christ's love for his church. So all those sacrificial things are analogous, you know, with a husband loving their wife, just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But this means when we're defining marriage in this Christian way, that marriage is a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman and according to the Bible God has devised marriage to reflect his saving love for us in Christ to refine our character believe it or not that's what marriage is for it's a sanctifying process there's no more intimate sanctifying process where your good and your bad come forward to sanctify you than in marriage and It's clear that marriage is to do that. And the next thing that marriage is to do is to create a stable human community for the birth and nurture of children. So when you're in this environment, the next uh, scripture twin admonition that God brings up is about children. So in this home where this is happening in a Christian household, here's the next twin admonition. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So children in the church are called out and addressed by the Apostle Paul in the household. You hear that? Children. The Apostle is speaking to children. That Just when you address somebody, first and foremost, I could have said this about wives too and women 
uh, just in general, the Apostle Paul, by addressing them, is placing value on them. He's talking directly to them uh, in the Word of God. Uh, It's very important. So children are, in just being addressed, are elevated to this place of membership in the household of God and an important role in the family, just by him addressing them directly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So children in, uh, in the church are called out and addressed by the Apostle Paul in the household. They're seen as valued members in the household and valued members in the church. They are to obey the Lord, for this pleases the Lord. Paul expects them and considers them able to know what it means to please the Lord. If you look back in Colossians 1.10, the Apostle Paul says, So walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Do you think he expected that also to be said to children and for them to expecting them in a Christian household to understand it? He did. He's telling them to obey their parents for this pleases the Lord. He expected children to be able to understand what it means to please the Lord. Paul is speaking to the whole church there and he's including children. He's talking directly to them. He expects uh, the obedience of, of Christian children to their parents to be and flow from their submission to the Lord. Children are submitted to the Lord. As they're, as they're submitted to the Lord, they would be submitted to their parents. And as they know this and live this way, it pleases the Lord. Children know would know from the Ten Commandments to honor their parents. One of the, the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments to honor their parents. And with a promise, it's the first commandment with a promise, and they will have a long life, that they would have a long life. Children are to know this. The Apostle Paul expects them to know this within the home. They know, as Christians, the Word of God, and they know what it means to please the Lord. And that pleasing the Lord would be living in obedience to their parents. There's the instructions, fathers, do not provoke your children. This is a twin admonition. It goes with fathers, how are you treating your children? So this is the twin admonition here that goes together. That's not complete without fathers and their part. Here's the admonition to the fathers with their children. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The fathers are called out specifically and addressed specifically not to provoke their children, not to irritate them by nagging at them, by deriding their efforts. Fathers are to obey these instructions. They are to submit to these commands as fathers. They are not to discourage their children. Fathers are not to be so hard on their children that they give up and they think it's useless to even try to please their father. These are the instructions here. The third and twin admonition is the longest of the admonitions. It has one more verse in it than the other previous four verses. The Apostle Paul spends five verses on servants to their masters. So this was an important issue. It was an important issue to them in that day. It can still be very hard for us to handle and understand this word bondservant translated in ESV is also translated very clearly slaves. This is a verse about slaves and the masters. And Paul spent a long time on this, writing about it. Probably more here in Colossians 
then maybe to the Ephesians. Uh, so it must have been an issue there why Paul is spending more verses on it. But it's also a, just a huge issue in the society and culture that Paul grew up in, the Greco-Roman world at the time he's writing. The commentary by Kent Hughes brings out that Paul's teaching here was accompanied by a great amount of tension and for several reasons. And he brings out primarily was the amazingly vast extent of slavery and its dehumanizing nature. Ancient historians estimate that there were some, this is hard to, I had to research this and look up other areas and everything, some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire or about one half of the population. So slavery was very common and very vast throughout the Roman Empire. So no doubt some slaves are getting saved and the gospel is going out. Some masters are getting saved as the gospel is going out. And how do you navigate that in a culture uh, where there's uh, slavery is a huge amount of, uh, of the workforce and everything in the culture? Uh, we see this is important to Colossians in the next chapter. We read into 4.1 because that's still uh, an, a command into maybe the division of the chapter was not. Those divisions were put in later, but it's still concerning masters to their slaves, so we included 4.1. But later in verse 9, Colossians 4.9, the Apostle Paul mentions Onesimus, who is our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, so he's saying he's from Colossae, and they will tell everything that has taken place there. So he's going with this letter. Onesimus has come uh, with this letter, and most people believe not only the letter of Colossians, but also the letter of Philemon. Familiar with that one, the shortest, you know? If you want to say you read a whole book in the New Testament, you can say, I read Philemon this morning. Uh, and... Uh, it's, it's only one chapter, and, and so very short. But Paul mentions Onesimus. Paul's companion letter, uh, most likely delivered by this, who you find out was a slave uh, in the household of Philemon. Sounds like a pretty tense situation, doesn't it? And so, in fact, the church was meeting in Philemon. He addresses Philemon, and then he says, the church meeting in your house, and he, Paul greets him, and then he begins to deal with Philemon about the the situation of uh, him being the master of the slave Onesimus. They both have become Christians in a society where slavery is very common. And so Paul in Philemon says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Uh, so what has happened in Paul's imprisonment is he has met Onesimus, and Onesimus has become a Christian. So what has happened here? He's, I've become a father. Onesimus is my child, Philemon now. I'm sending him back to you, and when I do, I'm sending my very heart. So this is an interesting thing of, of what he's doing here. Uh, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness 
might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Now, this, is, this is a huge thing of how he's trying to reconcile this situation in Colossae. Um, we can learn from it in how to handle difficult situations, and this is one of them. But he wants Philemon to receive Onesimus back and to what he's asking him to do. It, the Apostle Paul doesn't want to command him, force him to do it. He wants to release him back to him and do this right thing according, not out of compulsion, but out of Philemon's own accord. It's like giving this grace for God to work in his heart to change it. In verse 15 of Philemon, he says, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, that's this word slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. So Philemon has become a Christian, Onesimus has, and he's sending him back, and he goes, you might not receive him back as a bondservant and a slave anymore, and let you do this of your own accord, uh, you might receive him back as a brother in the Lord, right? Will you do this on your own accord, Philemon? He believes he will. And uh, the Apostle Paul goes on to say, uh, if you consider me your partner, Philemon, receive him as you would receive me. Send Onesimus back and says, receive him like if I was coming uh, to your house. So he's pushing him to do you know, he's encouraging him to do, but not commanding him to do a lot. And, he, and the Apostle Paul goes on to say, if he's wronged you at all, so when he left, how he left, how he kept thrown up, if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul's saying, I'm going to cover that. Whatever that is, charge it to me and my account. And he said, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. There you got it in writing. If, you, if, if it's about that, what he, what he cost you. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own life. That has to do with spiritual things about how Paul had discipled him in the Lord. But in verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Re refresh my heart in Christ. Like, do this for me. Refresh my heart. This is the appeal. This is handling a, a, a tense situation, but bringing about great change in a way that the world and the world would have seen this situation. This is being handled, even though we might not like how it's being handled, it's ha being handled in a very revolutionary way. Um, there were legal means within the Roman Empire uh, for a slave to become free. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21 Paul instructs there, uh, when, when, when you were saved, when you came to Christ, were you a, a bondservant? Were you a slave when called? He says, don't be concerned about it. But then it says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. So there was ways within the Roman Empire that a slave could be legally free. And Paul encourages them to do that. But Paul to the Colossians is asking for more than legal compulsion in Onesimus going back. He's asking for a willingness and a change 
of heart from Philemon, who has had a change in his eternal destiny with God and in Jesus to receive Onesimus back as a fellow brother in the Lord willingly. This is, this is huge. It's about a transformation of, of heart in a matter. So you can force people to do things and not get a, a change in it, a change in a life and a heart and a deep change in the relationship. And he's actually sending him back to confront this wrong and to resolve it in the Lord. And the Apostle Paul is confident that Philemon will do this and even more than he says to do. That's how he's closing out the letter. It's interesting to look at as we might go through. You might not say, let's just skip this. We don't have this in our culture. Let's move on. But we do because we still have um, slavery has continued, to, even though it dwindled in the Roman Empire, uh, from everything I read, mostly due to Christians bringing about that change, like the Apostle Paul is doing here. But slavery has continued uh, throughout the beginning of time to be an issue in the world. It's like wars and rumors of wars. Jesus said, you'll all have them. It's like having uh, poverty. Jesus says all these things about how to treat the poor, but then he says, the poor you will always have with you. You'll never resolve this. Only in the kingdom of God, under the rule and reign of Jesus, will these issues be done away with. But we are to work, nonetheless, for their abolition and including slavery. But you might want to study some more about Greco-Roman slavery, the differences of it, who were slaves. We come to slavery with the issues of uh, American, uh, Western type of slavery, which are very different, very different types of slavery, more racial-based slavery. The slavery in Rome wasn't racially based slavery, these 60 million plus half of the population enslaved. They might include all kinds of reasons why they had become slaves and bond servants. It might include that they were prisoners of war as Rome conquered uh, nations all around them, a people they brought back prisoners and they became slaves. So you would have slaves from all kinds of peoples, colors, nations all around them. You would have slaves uh, uh, brought in from all over the Roman territory at times for many reasons. Um, even Romans, Romans themselves sometimes were slaves because they got in a desperate situation and you could sell your children even into slavery to help pay off a debt. A lot of times it was debt-related, so there was debt-related slavery. There was no uh, bankruptcy protection laws if you borrowed from somebody and didn't pay it back, the way you paid it back is you became, in that household, a slave. So many, much slavery was due to out of uh, debt recollection um, because there was no bankruptcy protection laws. People were also enslaved because of punishment for crimes. If you were a criminal, a lot of times rather than just putting you in prison you went to be the slave of this person that you committed this crime against and you repaid it that way that was very tough in that relationship you might have been wrong stolen from that person had to come back you had to resolve not just that but the of the, of the payment was done with them serving you in your household as a bond servant so all of these areas slavery all of them it really wasn't in the roman empire 
based on race at all. And, and so most of the slavery of, of, of the Romans would look like them in, in, in outward appearance. They could. Uh, anyone could basically be a slave. You could be an attorney and made some bad loans and being a, a slave and had been an attorney. You could have been a doctor. You could have been a teacher. And in fact, many doctors, teachers were also slaves in society. So it was very different than the way that we might, in our mindset, think of slavery. But nonetheless, slavery was also always in these many types and forms, no matter what the reason it was always oppressive in nature. It was always something you would rather not have in a culture and a society. And Christianity is very much uh, leading the way on overcoming and defeating slavery. Still important uh, in this society. Uh, one of the uh, commentaries on Colossians by uh, Douglas J. Moo said, the, ris- the, the recipro- reciprocity, that is a hallmark, of this Colossian household code emerges here again in emphatic form. Slaves and masters ultimately serve the same Lord and that fundamental spiritual reality not only relativized their earthly relationship, which is master-slave, slave-master, it relativizes that, but it even sets the stage for its embolishment and it was uh, fading out and being ab- abolished in the Roman Empire um, and much through the work of Christians. We know that slavery has come back. We might have heard of William Wilberforce. We might have sung Amazing Grace of John Newton. And I don't know if you know about his background, but when he sings Amazing Grace and when he writes it, and the whole keys and the, everything about it was made to a, tomb of, uh, a tune of slaves on slave ships you know if all of the if you don't know about all of that read about it but john newton was a uh, slave captain of uh, ships of of british slave trader for over 20 years he was hauling uh, that um, and so he wrote a mate so when he says you know you saved a wretch like me he's like i was a wretch i was a mean slave trading uh captain of a slave trade a ship and profiting off of that he continued even after he quit being a captain of a ship continued to profit off of slave trading and so but he miraculously was saved he miraculously felt the grace and forgiveness of god he became a pastor an evangelical anglican clergyman of the day and one of the government uh, leaders in the parliament william wilberforce uh, became a christian and he went and consulted with john newton at, at this time, a pastor, and he said, I, should I just quit all this government work? And Newton says, no. And basically, they join up together and abolish slavery in Britain. You know, I'm shortening the story. You can read some of the details about it. But yes, John Newton, writer of Amazing Grace, was a slave trader, a captain of a ship, uh, several ships, and um, worked with uh, in, in the political realm with William Wilberforce to abolish uh, slavery. So Christians have come, and, and when they're saved and they're transformed, then they realize the evilness of slavery, and in their day and in their time, they work to abolish it. There are a couple of scriptures in 1 Timothy 1.10 where Paul says in this list of, of uh, 
sin, he says, the sexually immoral. This is 1 Timothy 1.10. The men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. It's clear there, he's saying, enslavers uh, and their actions are contrary to sound doctrine. There's a scripture in Exodus 21.16 that whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone who's found in possession of him shall be put to death. So I think there are some scriptures that lean heavily towards, you know, slavery is an evil in the world and to fight against it. But we still have slavery today in many ways. Some people say there's more enslaved people right now than ever in human existence, ever before in human existence. And one of the huge things that you've probably heard of is human trafficking, uh, a modern-day slave trade. It is the recruitment, the transportation, the transfer, the harboring, or the receipt of persons by means of threat or by use of force or other forms of coercion, of abduction, or of fraud, of deception, of the abuse of power, or of the position of vulnerability, or of the giving or receiving of payments or benefits to achieve the consent of a person having control over another person for the purpose of exploitation. I know that's a pretty deep thing, but it is modern-day slavery. It exists in almost every country. It's transnational. It's across multiple countries. It's the second largest criminal industry in the world, reaping an estimated $32 billion in the trade of human beings. And it's just second behind the drug trade. Poor people, children, minority communities, migrants, that's who are mostly involved and taken in this exploitation. So we're still fighting this today as Christians, and I think this is still going to be applicable, the Word of God, in our societies and cultures till Jesus Jesus comes back and rules on his throne. Nonetheless, we are to fight against it with all of our might and uh, strength, finances, and resources. And there's many organizations that help fight human trafficking. For a long time, since Teresa and I had our first uh, children, we have supported Compassion International. Compassion International helps children in poverty around the world and provides for them a daily meal, daily education, Christian-oriented and it keeps them out of being vulnerable to being preyed upon by human traffickers. It's just a great organization that we've supported. And as we took on these three grandchildren, we got each one of them a child that uh, we sponsor uh, for them. They picked ones that kind of had similar birthdays, and we support that and pray over them. And I know it's a tiny drop in the water, but find something to do to help fight against human trafficking. Tim Tebow now is even, his foundation is uh, uh, fighting mainly, main thrust against human trafficking. There's Samaritan's Purse. There's the IJM, International Justice Organization, and many that fight for justice around the world. 
these are faith-based organizations still fighting today against slavery. The Apostle Paul spent the most time on this in Colossians. I know for a lot of you, it was like, why did you spend so much time on it? And it's because so did he. Amen. We're going to come to the Lord's table, remembering the Lord's death and the giving of his body and the giving of his blood. And uh, we'll sing a final song together. But as you come and receive this cup, please return uh, to your seat and we will pray together over it together.
Praise the Lord. And good. Please receive this blessing. You have been blessed and strengthened in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, you are empowered to live within the Christian household in the way that his word orders and commands us to. So go and live in your homes and be blessed and flourish underneath the mighty hand of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.